If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Dirty Sexy History. I'm your host, Jessica Kale, and today, since I have you captive, we're going to talk about one of my favorite subjects. It's a doozy, so I'm going to jump right into it. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. He brought three ships and 120 men to Hispaniola, or modern-day Haiti and the Dominican Republic. Look, you've heard all this before. You might know that his ships were called the Nina, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria, but you might not be aware that in addition to Catholicism and European culture, Columbus brought a few other dubious gifts to the New World as well, namely measles, tetanus, typhus, typhoid, diphtheria, influenza, pneumonia, whooping cough, dysentery, and smallpox. Thanks, jerk. When he returned to Spain in 1493, he took back gold, tomatoes, and tobacco and all that good stuff, sure. But he also took back something that would kill an estimated 10 million Europeans and change the course of human history. That's right, guys. Today, we're going to talk about syphilis. Let's start at the beginning. On his first of four trips to the New World, Columbus noted that the natives of Hispaniola were unusually kind and soft-spoken, treating their neighbors as themselves in a thriving society that represented the true values of Christianity far better than Inquisition-era Spain, where people were routinely tortured, flayed, burned alive, or murdered in other unimaginably horrific ways in the name of the church. Columbus called the islands he found the Virgins, which would of course become the Virgin Islands. You'd think it was because of the virgin land, but no, it's much creepier. He got the idea from St. Ursula, who was said to have traveled with 11,000 virgins who were all eventually murdered by Attila the Hun. You can see we're off to a great start. Not content to simply trade with the natives, lovely people who had greeted his men with gifts of fruit and fish, Columbus returned to the islands in 1494 with 17 ships outfitted for violence. His men took over the island by force, murdering, raping, torturing, and enslaving the residents. Historian Bartolome de la Casas describes it thus. It was a general rule among the Spanish to be cruel. Not just cruel, but extraordinarily cruel, so they could cut an Indian's hands and leave them dangling by a shred of skin. They would test their swords on captured Indians and place bets on the slicing off of heads or the cutting of bodies in half with one blow. They burned or hanged captured chiefs. People were mutilated at whim. Women and children were raped, men murdered, and infants were fed to dogs. The violence was so horrific that many natives chose suicide over living among Columbus's men. Over the next 10 years, natives were rounded up and massacred by the thousands. People were beheaded, burned at the stake, or left to rot on gallows all over the island. It was horrific, inhumane, and it was also completely unnecessary to establish trade. 
Still, for every person who was murdered outright, and it is no small number, thousands more died as a result of the diseases brought to the Americas from Europe. The European conquest of the New World started what is now regarded as the largest genocide in human history, killing an almost unimaginable 100 million people through murder and disease, which was about 95% of the total native population at the time. Fortunately, or unfortunately, depending on which side of the sword you're on, karma is a real thing, and as Columbus presided over the carnage, he came down with a mysterious illness that would plague him for the rest of his life. So what is syphilis? According to the Mayo Clinic, syphilis is a bacterial infection usually transmitted through sexual contact, though it can be passed from mothers to unborn children as well. It has three distinct stages that may overlap and several symptoms that may occur in different orders. It's a little confusing, so we can see why it was called the Great Imitator. Before widespread testing, it could easily be mistaken for other conditions depending on when it was caught. The first stage is just a, a sore called a chancre. It's painless, and because of where they tend to be, a lot of these go unnoticed and heal on their own. The second stage usually starts with a rash or fever that may be accompanied with sores, muscle aches, a sore throat, and swollen lymph nodes. These symptoms can appear or disappear rapidly for up to a year. It's normal to have a latency period at this point. Some people think that's the disease going away because they don't have any outward symptoms, but the disease continues to wreak havoc on the body, attacking the brain, nerves, eyes, heart, blood vessels, bones, and joints. If left untreated, it can advance to tertiary syphilis when it attacks the brain and nervous system as well as the rest of the body. Symptoms include severe headaches, bone and joint pain, GI issues, fevers, loss of sight or hearing, chronic pain, and sores. The soft tissues of the nose and palate begin to rot, and teeth and hair can fall out. Lesions could consume the nasal bones and face until the flesh literally fell off of bones. Left long enough, it could also cause insanity and paralysis. Not everyone who had syphilis experienced the same symptoms on the same timeline, however. Its latent periods could really vary, so people could have it for years without realizing it. It was incredibly contagious, and many historians estimate that about a fifth of the population of Europe could have been infected at any one time. Columbus, though, he got the whole package. Columbus himself first started showing symptoms of what may have been syphilis in April of 1494. That month, he and many of his men suffered from a strange fever, which came back in September of that year. For the next several months, he was bedridden and delirious, forgetful, half-blind, and unable to take care of himself. With it came exhaustion due to extreme insomnia. He barely slept for more than a month of the time that he was taken ill. The murders continued in the spring of 1495, but according to the ship's physician, Diego Alvarez Shanka, a court doctor who had served Ferdinand and Isabella, more than a third of Columbus's men suffered from the same strange ailment and barely survived the trip back to Spain in 1496. Columbus himself had to be carried off the ship, and he was bedridden for another five months after that. Columbus never fully recovered. Over the next two years in Spain, he continued to suffer the same symptoms and others. Around this time, he thought he had gout throughout his entire body. The trouble is, gout doesn't really do that, but syphilis does. Chronic inflammation is a symptom, but it wasn't the only one that Columbus was having. 
Around this time, Columbus started to lose his mind. He heard voices, became increasingly erratic, and he predicted the world would end in 150 years. He said God spoke to him and claimed to have a nonspecific divine destiny, which was probably related to murdering more natives. He was mad as a hatter. These days, they'd put him on the GOP ticket. So what happened next? Well, they put him in charge of more people. The more things change, the more they stay the same. When Columbus returned to Hispaniola in August of 1498, he found that about a third of the Spanish men there had the French sickness, which is what they had started to call syphilis back in Europe in the grand tradition of just blaming it on the other guy. While he was there, the murders continued, but they took a turn that Spain wasn't expecting. Columbus had started murdering his own men for defying his increasingly despotic orders. Ferdinand and Isabella sent Commissioner Francisco de Bobadilla to check things out in 1499, and what he found was so upsetting that Bobadilla brought Columbus back to Spain in chains. His behavior had become bizarre and unpredictable, and this was coming from people who thought it was totally chill to cut off the noses and ears of the natives for fun. So Columbus wasn't in charge in Hispaniola anymore, but he wasn't done with the New World. He returned from 1502 to 1504. He spent much of that time in bed with severe chronic pain and auditory hallucinations. When he returned to Spain, he had to be carried off the ship again, but by this point, he was all but unrecognizable. Emaciated, immobile, mentally ill and nearly blind, he died in Valladolid, Spain in 1506. For centuries, epidemiologists have debated whether Columbus brought syphilis back to Europe from the New World, but the evidence does point that way. Paleoanthropologist Bruce Rothschild did in fact find syphilitic bones from this period on the island of Hispaniola, right where Columbus and his men made camp. There are no confirmed cases of syphilis in Europe from before Columbus returned, and as physician Ruiz Diaz de Isla reported in 1494, the natives of Hispaniola had been aware of syphilis since ancient times. So if Columbus did in fact bring syphilis back with him, and it really sounds like he did, it arrived in Europe on the Ides of March of 1493. You may remember the Ides of March from the warning to Caesar prior to his assassination on the Ides, or March 15th of 44 BCE. The date had once marked the new year, but as time went on, it became an increasingly common date for disasters, battles, and other major tragedies. Another one was coming, but it would take another two years for it to really hit. When we come back from our next little sidebar, we're going to be talking about the sickness of Naples and how it led to one of history's most important inventions. But first, we have a fun new segment to break up all this cheerful talk about venereal disease and genocide. Dr. John is out of town this week, so we're going to take it over to, well, me, for... Jess's Top 10 Influential Italians to Celebrate Instead of Christopher Columbus. Taking into consideration the fact that Columbus was a garbage human who murdered thousands of people and brought syphilis to Europe, you can understand why people are in favor of renaming Columbus Day Indigenous People's Day. A lot of cities have already done it, and I think that's awesome. It isn't so-called woke nonsense. After hearing the first half of the show, I hope you'll agree that it's really the least we can fucking do. 
Now, I know that for a lot of people, particularly Italian-Americans, Columbus is seen as a hero and his day has become a time to celebrate Italian culture and heritage. Like any group of immigrants, Italians have historically had a hard time in America, and I don't want to play that down. You should have a day to celebrate, and I'll celebrate right along with you. All I'm saying that if is that if your hero committed mass genocide, it might be time for a new fucking hero. Now, I'm a helpful sort, so I have some suggestions of great and not-so-great people you could celebrate instead. Starting with, in no particular order, Robert De Niro. The man's a national treasure. Has he given anybody diphtheria? No. Stick him on a float and throw confetti at him. He deserves it. Lucrezia Borgia. This infamous beauty pioneered hair bleaching, a process that took days to complete back in the Renaissance. You've got to admire the commitment. She was also accused of poisoning people, organizing orgies, and fucking her brother, but she's still not as problematic as Christopher Columbus. Cheers. Michelangelo. When the papal master of ceremonies, Biagio da Cesena, complained that the nudes in the Sistine Chapel would be more suited to a tavern wall, Michelangelo painted him into the Last Judgment as a devil with donkey's ears. The Sistine Chapel is one of the most popular attractions in the world, and every year an estimated 5 million tourists get to see a transcendentally beautiful, painstakingly preserved likeness of Biagio da Cesena naked with a snake biting his dick. You don't have to go to the Vatican to see it, though. It's on our Instagram. You're welcome. Sophia Loren. Not only is she gorgeous, but she admits to eating carbs. I respect that. The world would be a better place if we switched out every Columbus monument with a statue of Sophia Loren. Any arguments? I didn't think so. Pellegrino Artuzzi. Speaking of carbs, this writer and certified foodie is credited with establishing a national cuisine for a united Italy. In 1891, he published The Art of Cooking, the first cookbook to represent all regions of Italy, and it was so popular that it's still in print to this day. Marco Polo. You want an explorer? How about Marco Polo? In the 13th century, this Venetian merchant and writer traveled across Asia to the court of Kublai Khan and beyond, and best yet, he wrote everything down. In 1300, he published his writings, which gave most Europeans their first look at the various cultures along the Silk Road to Persia, India, China, and Japan, and it remains a valuable historic source to this day. Lorenzo de' Medici, better known as Lorenzo the Magnificent. This ultra-wealthy scion of the Medici family was a major patron of Renaissance art and literature. He had great taste, and his sponsorship of artists like Botticelli, da Vinci, and Michelangelo supported their careers and led to them becoming the household names we still know today. Speaking of which, check us out on Patreon at Dirty Sexy History. <laughs> Galileo. When physicist and astronomer Galileo agreed with Copernicus that the Earth revolves around the Sun and not the other way around, he was tried for heresy by the Roman Inquisition. He continued his work under house arrest, where he stayed for the rest of his life. He got the last word, though. His observations turned out to be right, and today, preserved like a relic under glass at the Florence History of Science Museum, you can still see his preserved middle finger. Don't worry. That's on our Instagram, too. Leonardo da Vinci. You probably know him as a painter first and foremost, but not only did he create the Mona Lisa, 
arguably the most famous painting in the world, but he made several important scientific discoveries and designed parachutes and flying machines some 400 years before the first airplanes. Gabriele Fallopio. You might not have heard of him, but I can guarantee that you've heard of his invention. Which takes us to part two, the sickness of Naples and the invention of modern condoms. By the time Columbus's first ships returned to Europe, many of his men were also showing symptoms of the disease. Their physician, Ruiz Diaz de Isla, reported that syphilis first appeared in Barcelona in 1493, noting, Since Admiral Don Christopher Columbus, who had relations in Congress with the inhabitants of this island during his stay, discovered this island, and since this disease is naturally contagious, it spread with ease and soon appeared in the fleet itself. In 1494, King Charles VIII of France took several of Columbus's ailing men into his own army, where it quickly spread among the ranks. In early 1495, King Charles marched on the Kingdom of Naples with a cavalry of 18,000 plus 20,000 foot soldiers, among them Columbus's men and the others they had directly or indirectly infected. Charles held the city for all of a week before he was expelled, but by then the damage was done. Charles returned to France with the pox. As for Naples, the tragedy was only just beginning. According to Gabriele Fallopio, the Spanish had returned from the New World with more sickness than gold, and they passed infected sex workers to the opposition as a kind of early germ warfare. The disease spread before people knew it was there, and once it got a foothold, it was impossible to miss. By June, only a month after the French and Spanish had arrived, Sicilian physician Nicolas Scilaccio was at his wit's end. He wrote, the purulent pustules spread in a circle, and there is an abundance of the most virulent lupus. The signs of the sickness are these. There are itching sensations and an unpleasant pain in the joints. There is a rapidly increasing fever. The skin is inflamed with revolting scabs and is completely covered with swellings and tubercules, which are of a livid red color, then become blacker. I exhort you to provide some new remedy to remove this plague from the Italian people. Nothing could be more serious than this curse, this barbarian poison. The smell was so bad that the local leper colony complained. People publicly wondered if it could be spread by smell alone. Still, there was no great mystery as to how one got it. It helped, of course, that it tended to start with one very specific area. In 1496, Joseph Grunpeck wrote of his own experience, and it doesn't sound like fun. The disease loosed its first arrow into my priapic glands, which, on account of the wound, became so swollen that both hands could scarcely encircle it. It was so cruel, so distressing, so appalling, that until now nothing more terrible or disgusting has ever been known on this earth. Grunpeck suffered through months with an infected abscess on his, uh, priapic glands, as well as pustules all over his body. He recovered, though. Miraculously, Grunpeck lived until the age of 81, but he suffered from chronic pain for the rest of his life. While in Naples arranging a marriage for his sister Lucrezia, Cesare Borgia contracted syphilis from a sex worker. He was a cardinal at the time, but he wasn't the only member of the church with the disease. 
as visible as it was, it was proof that certain people weren't as celibate as they claimed. It seems that everyone at the time knew and fully acknowledged that Columbus had brought it back with him. They blamed it on the native women of Hispaniola, accusing them of immodesty and witchcraft rather than, you know, being raped and murdered by Spanish soldiers. It became known as the French disease or the sickness of Naples, but soon it was known by a more universal name, the pox. It was called the pox because of the noticeable effects the disease had on the skin of the afflicted, leaving lesions and decaying soft tissues that were sometimes mistaken for leprosy. The name syphilis comes from a Greek legend about a peasant Apollo had punished with poor health and lesions all over his body. The peasant's name was Syphilis, and he could only be cured by mercury. Taking the name of the god as direction for the cure, syphilis was treated at the second stage with mercury in every form, from enemas, ointments, and pills, to steam baths or sweats in mercury vapor. If you watched me in the Lost Pirate Kingdom, you may also remember that some people also injected it directly into the site of the infection. But this isn't just hearsay. When Blackbeard's ship, the Queen Anne's Revenge, was found off the coast of North Carolina, they discovered the remains of a urethral syringe that had once contained mercury for the treatment of syphilis. Of course, men weren't the only people infected. Some medical providers even sold chocolate drinks laced with mercury for infected men to give their wives and children to treat them without them even realizing they had the disease. Although an estimated 20% of Europe had it at any given point, it was the ultimate taboo, and quiet doctors were worth their weight in gold. Modern doctor-patient confidentiality really started with the hush-hush treatment of syphilis. The trouble is, of course, that mercury doesn't cure syphilis. Too much mercury will kill you. Mercury poisoning can cause neurological issues, muscle weakness, lack of coordination, numbness, anxiety, trouble speaking, hearing or seeing, kidney problems, or even pink and peeling skin. The telltale sign of someone taking mercury as a supplement to fight syphilis was gray spit and foul-smelling breath. If that's not bad enough, some people were even reported to have suffocated during mercury-steaming treatments. The mercury wasn't working. Fortunately, something better was in development. It may surprise you to hear that the modern condom was invented by a priest. Go ahead and laugh. It wouldn't be the first time the church changed its position on something related to sex. Anyway, Gabriele Fallopio was a Catholic priest and physician from Medina. He graduated medical school at the University of Ferrara in 1548, 50 years after syphilis had first devastated Naples. He remembered hearing about it, though. His father had been in Naples at the time and passed on stories of seeing Spanish soldiers pass infected sex workers back to the French. Syphilis hadn't gone away, though. In 50 years, infections had increased exponentially, and preventing it was still an urgent issue in medical science. Fallopio was regarded as an expert in sexual health. The fallopian tubes are in fact named after him, and it's not just some crazy coincidence. So he was the first person in modern history to engineer and test condoms in clinical trials. In 1564, he published De Morbo Gallico, literally of the French disease, a treatise on syphilis. In it, he recommended using linen sheaths soaked in a solution of salt and herbs as condoms to prevent transmission. 
He claimed to have tested this on more than a thousand men, and he reported that none of them caught it, as far as he was aware. Of course, now we know that something as porous as linen would be useless against this kind of disease, and salt and herbs are about as helpful as you'd expect. He was on the right track, though. Over time, others continued his work and kept trying condoms made from different materials. The goal was to prevent venereal disease, not pregnancy. As we covered in episode one, other things already existed for that. Disease wasn't the only thing they were preventing, though. Writing in the 17th century, French courtier Madame de Sevigné described condoms as an armor against enjoyment and a spider web against danger. She was right. By this point, leather and sheep intestines had replaced the linen and salt. The new condoms were stiff, reusable, and tied with ribbons, so if they did succeed in preventing pregnancy or venereal disease, it was purely accidental. They did work some of the time, however. In 1666, the English Birth Rate Commission noted a decrease in fertility among the population, and they attributed that to condom use. Just one year later, in 1667, condoms were lauded by the Earl of Rochester as a protection against both disease and pregnancy in his poem, Panegyric Upon Condoms. You guys want an excerpt? Here goes nothing. That when replete with love and spurred by lust, you seek the fair one in her cobweb haunts, or when allured by touch of passing wench, or caught by smile insidious of the nymph, who in green box at playhouse nightly flaunts, and fondly calls thee to love's luscious feast. Be cautious, stay a while till fitly armed with condom shield at rummer best supplied, or never-failing rose, so you may thrum the ecstatic harlot, and each joyous night crown with fresh raptures, till at least unhurt and sated with the banquet you retire. By me forewarned thus may you ever treat love's pleasing paths in blessed security. He later died of syphilis. Fortunately, condoms improved significantly over the years with the invention of vulcanized rubber. Although everyone did not have access to them, they were easier to obtain than most contraception for women, which had to be fitted by a doctor. Condoms were available over the counter, in slot machines, and even from the barber. In the 17th century, you could buy them over the counter at your local coffee shop. Maybe that's something for Starbucks to consider going forward. I don't know. Well, in 1915, L.A. Jackson established the London Rubber Company to sell condoms to barbers. They wanted to be known for three things, durability, reliability, and excellence. By 1929, they registered their brand under a shorter name, Durex. There's no cure for syphilis until the first case was successfully treated with penicillin in 1943. On that note, stay safe, everybody, and tune in next week for something completely different. While you're waiting in line to awkwardly pay for your Durex, subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating or review because it really helps us out. We do also have a Patreon now at patreon.com slash dirtysexyhistory, and you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at dirtysexyhistory. This week, we'd like to thank our patrons excuse me, our Patreon patrons, Michael Beckwith, Adriana Herrera, Howard David Ingham, Jessica Miller, and Lorenzo the Magnificent. Shut up, I'm trying to manifest. (laughs) 
Uh, this episode of D Dirty Sexy History was written, researched, and God help me, edited by me, Jessica Kale. And my sources today include Catherine Arnold, The Sexual History of London, Sarah Dunant, Syphilis, Sex, and Fear, How the French Disease Conquered the World, Gabriele Fallopio, De Morbo Gallico, Deborah Hayden, The Pox, Genius, Madness, and the Mysteries of Syphilis, The Mayo Clinic, Claude Catel, History of Syphilis, Liza Picard, Restoration London, John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, Panegyric Upon Condoms, Atlas Obscura, Galileo's Middle Finger. <laughs> See you guys next week.